In the past few weeks, we've seen how Jesus was rejected in the temple, rejected in Jerusalem. So he went northward up through Samaria. Last week, we, from John chapter 4, talked about the woman at the well. Jesus told the disciples, I have to go through Samaria. When we got to Samaria, we saw that he was received in Samaria. Uh, and that's why John, in John chapter number 1, told you in the overview opening, this is God. He's going to do something as big as creation now. Watch what He does. He goes unto His own, and His own reject Him. Then He goes northward to Samaria, and the Samaritans accept Him. And that's why John said that. He came into His own, and His own received Him not, but as many as received Him. To them gave He power to become the children of God. And then John starts talking about the new birth from above. The same conversation... John has in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, the ultimate Jew, as they have their one-on-one conversation in John chapter number 3. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus cannot understand what he's saying. It's kind of a duality of the adverb. And Jesus said, you'd be born again once more, but this time from a different source, from above, consistent with what John has been telling us all along. So Jesus in Samaria last week, <clears throat> it's really a... A uh, outsider group stuck between the north and the south of uh, the two groups of, of pure-blood Jews. The group in the south is Judah, and the group in the north, the, the region, is called Galilee, obviously surrounding the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is now going to press north. He's going to go up to the region of Galilee. That's where he grew up, actually. Nazareth is just a few clicks from the Sea of Galilee. He's just right there. And so he's kind of in his own his own place, just not his own city, no, his own birth city. So he goes up and to the Sea of Galilee, and uh, uh, you can see the ruins of those cities still there today. We'll be visiting in a few months. But there were cities dotting the rim all the way around the perimeter of the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, today, really, there's just one big uh, uh, city, Tiberias, up there uh, on kind of the, the southern side. And the northern sides are just little ruins where the cities used to be. Uh, up there, gosh, I don't even know what o'clock, about 9, 10 o'clock on the dial, something like that, somewhere up on the northwest side would have been uh, uh, Capernaum, uh, west-northwest side. Capernaum, Bethsaida, Cherosen, little villages up there. And Jesus is going to center his ministry up there on the Sea of Galilee in one of those little villages named Capernaum. Capernaum is uh, uh, the, the home city of Peter and Andrew. And James and John, the fishermen, that's where they are uh, centered out of. And that'll be the home ministry, really the home base of Jesus' ministry for like the next year, year and a half. Uh, We've come to a part of the ministry now where if I could just summarize what's going to happen for the next few months of Jesus' ministry uh, is lots of miracles are going to happen. Uh, It's going to have lots of personal encounters with people and do lots of miracles uh, and uh, he's going to do a lot of teaching. And a lot of that teaching is going to be uh, short and concise in parabolic form. In other words, the parables are really short stories about one subject. It's not meant to give you a whole theology. It's not meant to give you a broad knowledge. It's just to tell you one thing, one aspect of what the kingdom of God is like or what God is doing uh, in our midst. Now, I have six weeks till I get to the Easter season, to Palm Sunday, and I really want to focus on 
kind of what happens to Jesus when he goes up to Jerusalem the last time. And that'll gobble up several, several weeks here. So only about six weeks to get ready for that. So obviously there's no way I can teach the Sermon on the Mount, which is the long sermon, runs three chapters in the book of Matthew, all the parables and all the miracles. So here's what we do. I'm just going to keep this series going because I want to get Jesus to Jerusalem and show you how God became king. That's what we're driving at. And then after that is done, after Easter, we can go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount and put some more, some more meat on the bones, so to speak, if you want us to. So this morning what I want to do is I just want to give you a parable, just one, so you can get the flavor of what a parable feels like and looks like and sounds like and, and discern the truth it's trying to teach and why it's pertinent to, to the story. So uh, remember, Jesus has now been preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's gone through synagogues and towns and cities preaching a singular message that the kingdom of God is now here. It is breaking out right now in your community. And when we say kingdom of God, we mean the restored rule of God on earth, uh, uh, which only comes as Jesus brings in the kingdom of God and you receive him as your king. This is the message he's been preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's now. You want to be a part of it. Get your heart ready. Receive the Messiah. Get in line with what God's doing. Now, here's the setting. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Now, if you're standing in Galilee, that's further north. It's the next country north. Man, it's really the, the word is getting out now through the countryside, through Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. As I just told you, this is what this phase of ministry looks like. Large crowds from Galilee, uh, the Decapolis, that's a, a Greek word for ten cities. There are ten cities east of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and those ten cities in Israel are not Jewish cities. They are Greek cities left over from the previous empires of Alexander and others that have colonized there in the Middle East. There's ten Greek cities sitting right in the middle of that land over there that was given to, to Abraham's children. So the Decap people from the Decapolis are coming. That means there are probably some Gentiles wanting to hear what's going on. People from Jerusalem were coming up from the south to the north. People from all over Judea and the region across Jordan on the other side of the Jordan River followed him. Now, what that means is he's starting to make a pretty big stir now. People are coming from all over to see this Jesus and to listen to him. And what we learn is that Jesus has, uh, he hikes up a hillside and a great crowd spreads out before him. We'll visit this site when we go to Israel in a few months. And from that position overlooking the Sea of Galilee on the mountain, he preaches to this large crowd of people, delivers the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. Uh, that is really Jesus' full-bodied explanation, the Sermon on the Mount, of what it means to be kingdom people. 
what kingdom people are to act like and look like and live like. And it's filled with stuff we'll see in just a moment. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you type talk. The Sermon on the Mount is what kingdom people are like. And Jesus is saying to this big crowd, the kingdom is here. This is now. And this is how you should be. And this is what you should be doing for the kingdom of God. You enter into the kingdom. You become a part of it by being born again. Born from above. By believing in the Son that the Father has sent. And our vocation as Jesus followers, which we use this word vocation a lot, what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be an image bearer of God is what Jesus is teaching and presenting in the Sermon on the Mount. And when He delivers that, we are no longer constrained by what the world's view is of success uh, or power. Jesus presents us, uh, He's really destroyed our categories, presents us a whole new dynamic of what it means to live as a human being. Living as a human being is not about crushing others so you can get to the top. It's not about being stronger than everyone so you can invade their country and take their stuff and their money and their resources, which is really the history of the world, isn't it? Uh, he's showing us a whole new way to live that sounds like love your neighbor as yourself. He's given us a whole new dynamic of what it means to be human. This is what God intended humans to be. This is what He intended when He created us. And Jesus is returning us to the rule of God on earth. Uh, and, and now, uh, what I would say to you is, is Jesus gives us this deeper picture of what it means to live as a human being in the kingdom of God. And after His delivery of the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, I run several chapters there, you come to a passage of Scripture where Jesus says, okay, I've told the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, let me give you a postscript sort of, sort of speaking here, kind of a P.S. He tells a parable. He tells a story, and it's the parable I want to present to you this morning, one you're likely familiar with. Matthew 7, verse number 24. Jesus is speaking, direct quotes now. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. Everybody know where this is going, right? You've heard this story? The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash now not all of us grew up in church uh, and those who did in this room come from many different traditions I'm just going to give you about 10 seconds of silence here as you answer this question in your head what is the story about? What is the teaching of this story? It's most likely that you come to a conclusion like this. 
We are to build our lives on the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the rock and the sure foundation upon which someone can build a life. And that life which is built on Christ will withstand the storms and the trials of life and will never fall. Our tradition taught us that was the meaning of the story. But I'll read it again with you and I want to challenge you. Is this really the meaning of the story? I grew up in church. It's fine if I self-deprecate for a while, so bear with me. I grew up in church, so naturally, I think I know everything about God in the Bible. I've been here since the week I was born, okay? And that's my baggage to deal with, that I have been so long in church, I think instantly I know everything about everything, and everything I've ever heard is correct. But examining the stories in the light of their original context and approaching the stories with not Sunday school eyes but with adult eyes and an adult life experience and an adult mentality and a mature spiritual capacity I should be asking myself is what I was taught correct because we're no longer children and I think it's time for us to grow up and look at some of these passages with adult eyes an adult understanding. Let me read the story again. This time I'm going to read it from a different version. We read it from God's Word translation just because it reads uh, so easily. Just to uh, see if we can have some variety here. Matthew 7:24. Therefore, everyone who hears what I say and obeys it will be like a wise person who built a house on a rock. Rain poured, floods came, winds blew and beat against the house. But it did not collapse because its foundation was on rock. Everyone who hears what I say but doesn't obey it will be like a foolish person who built house, a house on sand. Rain poured, floods came, winds blew and struck that house. It collapsed as the result was a total disaster. And the more I read and the more I read, the more it begins to come into focus for me. The point of the story is, I'd be foolish not to do what Jesus says. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like this. Whoever hears these words of mine, my teachings... And doesn't do them, total disaster is where life is going. It's not about building your house on foundation and, and this and slightly wrong in the teaching. The teaching is you'd be foolish. I'd be foolish not to do what Jesus has said to me to do. Let me see if I can help you a little bit further. I want to be a very gentle leader with you here, and I'm not being critical at you. I'm talking to all of us together. Being a disciple is not about attending church and hearing the teachings of Jesus. Stay with me right here. Very carefully choosing my words. Being a disciple is about coming to church, hearing the teaching of Jesus, and then doing what Jesus said to do. And that little end piece makes all the difference. 
Christianity is not about following Jesus by coming to church on Sunday, hearing something, and then back to work business as usual tomorrow. Following Christ is about every chance you get hearing the teachings of Christ and saying, what can I do about that now in my life? I need to, after you hear something, now it's time to go see what can we do about that this week. God, let your message ring in our hearts. Let your word ring in our ears until we know how to do it in our life uh, during our, our, our work week and during our school week. You see, we are being held accountable to do the things we have heard. Now, the simple Bible word for this is obedience. It's a simple word that means doing what you've been instructed to do, doing what you've heard. And, and I really want to just, from the tradition I come from, if you're from my tradition, you just sit here beside me and buckle in, okay? Our great dilemma is not that we haven't heard from God. Our great dilemma is not that we don't understand the teaching of the Word of God. Our great dilemma is that we have not done what Jesus has asked us to do. And so we're in danger in our community and in our state and in the deep south here, we are in danger of living out a false narrative of what Christianity is really even about. What it means to be a Christian, I think most people are very confused on. All over the country uh, and all over our community this morning by the thousands, believers are coming faithfully like they do every Sunday uh, and attending church today. And when this is all over, somebody's going to like the sermon and share the sermon and subscribe to the sermon and comment on the sermon. And then we're going to log off and we're going to go right back to business as usual tomorrow morning and back to our old behavior at school and back to our old behavior at work and back to our old lifestyle at home and right back to our raised voices and shouting in our marriage and right back to our rebellion and right back to our division and right back to the old way we were. We just, the needle finds the groove and the record just plays on as it's always played and there is no change. Many people who come to Christ will never experience life change. I'm not saying they're not born again. They are. They just will never experience life change. Unless they do what Jesus asked them to do. Many people will never take a risk to incorporate the gospel into their lives by living out the obedience to Christ's commands. They'll simply feel good that they, this is our way we say it, say, did church. They'll feel good. Yes, I do church every Sunday. And I, I just want to say to our congregation and to our disciples listening around the world, this is not what Christ intended. He didn't intend for His people to do church and then go live untransformed lives on Monday morning. He intended us to attend church Open spiritual ears, let the Word of God get into our heart, and now let's go try to do it. Let's go try to do what Christ has told us to do. Uh, and I think the early apostles definitely got this, and, and those surrounding Jesus Christ. I know that J Jesus' brother, his baby brother James, got it, because when James wrote the book of James, James presented to you this theological argument. He says, faith without works is... What's that? It's dead being alone. He said, it's not that you have to have works to be saved. We know we're saved by grace without works. It's all of faith in Jesus Christ. But real salvation will always produce an obedient, transformed life that does the teachings of Jesus. Now, granted, there's kind of a 
there's a period of time when you don't really know what Jesus has said to do. You believed on him, you trusted him, you believe he's the son of God and you put your faith in him and he's forgiven your sins. And listen, so there is a process of learning the word of God and it takes time to hear what the Bible's teaching and that transformation comes slowly and I'm totally good with slow, sure, steady transformation. I'm not saying it has to be fast, but I'm saying it has to be. There does have to be transformation if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Dr. David Jeremiah, who I consider a very moderate, even-keeled, well-spoken person, never gets really fired up in the pulpit, very intelligent man, I ran across this quote, to call someone Lord and to disregard their instructions is to live as a liar and a hypocrite. Now, coming from David Jeremiah, that's like Christian cursing almost, you know what I'm saying? Uh, To call someone Lord and disregard their instructions is to live as a liar and hypocrite. Now, this is the story Jesus is telling. He has spoken to them the Sermon on the Mount. And now he's saying, let me tell you now what's going to happen. You're either going to be a foolish person or you're going to be a wise person. And it's going to depend on what you do with what you heard. So now, if you were to say, Pastor, assess us, I I don't want to. So what I'm going to ask you this morning is I want you to self-assess. I want you to decide, are you a hearer only? Or are you a doer of what you have heard? Are you fulfilling your kingdom vocation by trying to live out every week the teachings of Jesus in your life? Are you doing the teachings of Jesus I can assure you, if you are on that pursuit to try to incorporate the teachings of Jesus in your life, listen, it won't be done without the power of the Holy Spirit. You won't be able. But as you lean into the Holy Spirit's power and ask for help, and you try to uh, let Him take control and follow the, the life of Christ in your life, you will be transformed you will begin to think differently by the renewing of your mind. You will begin to process differently. You will then to begin to judge differently. You'll begin to assess differently. You'll begin to look at people differently when you follow Jesus Christ. you begin to look at yourself differently when you follow Jesus Christ. you begin to act differently. You'll probably begin to talk differently. Now, it probably takes some time. And then some days you're going to get in a real situation and you're going to talk like your old self once in a while. And then you're going to feel bad about it. You're going to go look in the mirror and say, why am I acting like that old me? That's not me anymore. And you're going to feel ashamed and you're going to bow your head and say, God, forgive me because I just kind of lost my junk here in this moment. And God, I need to, I need to just get back in sync. Forgive me and let God get you back where you need to be. And then you start adding the life of Christ attributes back into your life. And you, this is what Christian life looks like according to Jesus. And you have to decide. I'm not saying the foolish person in the story is even lost. It's been taught that way. Here's the wise person believes on Jesus and the foolish person doesn't believe. Jesus didn't say anything about that. He said, I just taught you the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're all followers of Jesus Christ and you're all born again. You can be a foolish Christian (laughs) and still be a Christian. Now, come on, seriously, folks. You know a lot of Christians that do stupid things. 
You and I do stupid things. That's the Christian I know that does stupid things. I look at him every morning when I shave his face. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Uh, So sure, you can be a believer and a follower of Jesus and not do what he told you to do. And then you later look back and say, oh, even though I'm a follower of Jesus, I I was being foolish in this moment. I should have done what he said and loved my neighbor, and then it would have opened up a different, different path for me. I should have not been judgmental in this moment. It would open up a different path for me. Oh, if I'd only listened to Jesus last week when I was confronted with this situation, then I would have had a different outcome than the one I had. And now looking back, I'm the foolish person in the story. And Jesus says, if you never do what I say, then what you're going to find is life is just a total disaster. <laughs> it just collapses on you. But if you'll do what I say, you realize that life will go the right way. It'll have the right uh, outcome. I assure you that your life will be transformed as you put into practice the teachings of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the, the teaching of the parable is simple. I'd be foolish not to do what Jesus says. So about this point right here is where you should be saying, well, what did he say? Well, if we look back to the previous pages of our Bible, he just finished the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount runs Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This parable is in Matthew 7. Okay? So he just finished it. And now he says, now you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. So let's look back at just a few. I may teach a whole series on this, but let me just, a little highlight of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus just said. You'd be a fool not to do it. Here's what Jesus just said in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. You'd be foolish not to. Here's what Jesus says. But I tell you, Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, that's a radical idea, I'll tell you that. Because my own human nature tells me punch my enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. That's a radical departure from our human nature. Sometimes Christians will ask me, Pastor, I just don't know if I'm really changing much. Sure you are. Sure you are. Have you punched anybody this week? Please say no. I didn't even punch the little antichrist. I mean, no. No. I figured Jesus wanted to introduce me to him so I'd know what he looks like. I mean, uh, no. And if you are, are keeping your cool and... And even when somebody is opposing you, you're letting their words fall to the ground. Maybe you don't even have to answer their words. You realize you don't have to answer all your critics, right? Matter of fact, I think most of the time you win the argument if you just say, all right, whatever, and just walk away. I think you look like you've won in my eyes most of the time without having to give a a, a profound answer to your critics. Loving your enemies and praying for them. Listen, one of the biggest insults I think I've ever got is when I was in a discussion with somebody and they looked at me and said, listen, I'm going to just going to pray for you. I'm like, no, don't you take the spiritual high road. I want to fight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I realized in that moment they just bested me by acting like Jesus. Not by winning the argument, by acting like Jesus. And so what I want to say to you is you are making progress because you've already started incorporating the teaching of Jesus into your life. And this is a radical departure from human nature. Kingdom people watch what they say. Kingdom people watch how they say what they say. You say why? Because we care. It matters. 
Are you living that life right now? That you kind of try to watch what you say and how you say it in order not to... Yeah, okay, well then see, it's working. Transformation's already happening in your life. And truth spoken with love has the power to transform the hearts of other people. Even the hearts of your enemies. So Jesus says, love your enemies. Now he says to you, let me remind you what he said in the parable. You'd be a fool not to do this. You'd be foolish, Erica, not to love your enemies and pray for them. Because that's the way your life goes the right way. Stand strong on the rock. Why? When you do what Jesus said to do. What did he say to do? Love your enemies and pray for them. Wow, you know what I'm thinking, Brenda, of being a Christian? It's not that easy. It's just not like automatic. You have to be intentional about this. Because naturally, I want to have one reaction. But Jesus is saying, fight that sinful nature. Yield to the Spirit. And He'll help you have a different reaction. And that takes some intentionality to say, Oh, oh, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do right now? I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to know, even though we disagree, I'm going to love you and pray for you. That's a completely radical response right there. Also, here's what Jesus said. Let me just give you several of these. Jesus has just told them to pray and act for God's kingdom to come on earth. Not, not fly away to heaven to live in eternity. That's not Jesus preaching. Jesus says, I want you to pray that God's kingdom comes now. It is here now. And I want you to pray that the rule of God takes over planet earth. Matthew 6, 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying to the people listening to the sermon that God's kingdom is here and I want it to become more realized and more visualized and it's like a mustard seed. It's spreading. I want it to grow. I want the kingdom of God to take over control of planet earth. But it will never spread unless first he's the king of your own life. So you need to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. In the first place, God, we need your will to be done is right here in the life of this man. Because, God, I'm out of control too much. Uh, Lord, your will be done in my life. Lord, you have control of my life. Let me be that angled mirror. Let me be your living image. Let me be your kingdom witness. When people see me, may they see at least a little bit of Jesus Christ. May they see a little bit of what the rule of God looks like in a human being's life. What does that look like? I love your neighbor and pray for your enemies. And one of those things is to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth. Now, I think I could, I could probably preach a whole sermon about this, and time's not going to allow me, so let me just say this. I think living this kingdom life involves sharing the gospel. It could involve making disciples. It could involve modeling the life of Christ. It could be experiencing continual transformation. I mean, I could say this in a lot of different ways. We're bringing a lost world to know Jesus one person at a time. We're modeling Christ first to our own family at home. Let me just park here for a minute. This is not my notes, so I just feel compelled to say something. If we're not making the kingdom of God in our own home, how in the world are we ever going to reach the world for Christ? How can we say to the world, the mission of this church is the spread of the kingdom of God? And they can hear us through the brick wall next door. There are neighbors screaming at each other. Raised voices in our home, yelling at our spouses, castigating our children, family in disarray. You know the first place the kingdom of God needs to take control? You and your family. 
And we as God's people can't, can no longer just do church on Sunday. We've got to go let the kingdom of God take control of our business and our family and our life. And that doesn't mean, I mean, it doesn't mean you're having church at home. It just means you're no longer beating each other. I mean, this, we're no longer, we're changing the dynamic as Christ is changing us. I mean, tell me about your marriage and tell me about your parenting and tell me about your relationship with your parents. I can tell you a lot about whether transformation is happening on a spiritual level in your life. Because what Jesus is saying for us to do will bear this fruit of transformation. So I just want to say to all of us this morning, I have a, you know, we have a very global vision here about reaching the world with the gospel that sometimes I need to back up and you need to back up and say, what, what about 7955 North Beach Street? What, what, what about my, my home address? What about, okay, does that look like a little slice of heaven? Your home should look like a little slice of, of the kingdom of God. Brenna, when you have your own home, it's a little bit of heaven on earth. And God wants it to be that way. You know, that's part of the joy of having, I mean, I know you never, maybe you never really own anything. I get that. But let me say it this way, whatever you're in charge of, the bank will probably own it most of your life, at least for 30 years of it. But what I'm saying is you're in control kind of that little plot of land and that home and the people who come and go and what happens there. Listen, it's your responsibility to make that a little bit of heaven on earth. And if you do that, and 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 I do that, well, before you know it, a community is transformed. Because our whole neighborhood, every other house are believers, and everybody's making the world look a little bit like God's kingdom. You see what's happening? And this is what Jesus is actually telling them. You want Capernaum to be transformed? Okay, good. Let's put this... Let's put this into practice. We're going to have two categories. People who only hear and never do and people who hear and do. And the ones who hear and do, this is transformative to the world. Well, let me go to the third one. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12 that we're to treat others the way we want to be treated. Now, I want to say about this, you'd be a fool not to. Matter of fact, let me just say this. You'd be foolish to think people are going to treat you any differently than you treat them. You'd be foolish to complain about how you're being treated. Because you're likely being treated the way you treat other people. I feel like I could say this a lot of different ways, Letty. Let me just think about it here for a minute. None of this is in my notes. I need to stop riffing. Matthew seven twelve. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And Jesus makes a really profound statement. This is really a summary of the whole law and prophets. You want me to summarize really most of the Old Testament? Why don't you treat people the way you want to be treated? (laughs) If you invade your neighbor, don't be shocked when they, 20 years from now, have a stronger army and then invade you. If you take advantage of your business people in the community, don't don't be surprised later when they have the upper hand, they buy you out and throw you out. Hostile takeover. In other words, he's saying, what, 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 what you're saying, what comes around goes around? Okay? You'd be a fool not to treat people the way you want to be treated. At work, at school, 
in the home, in the community, because how you treat others will always come back to you. Always. Maybe not immediately, but eventually it will always come back to you. Here's what Jesus said next. He said, be merciful. Now I'm going to go to Luke because it also has the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Jesus said, be like Dad. Can you see Jesus delivering this? I want you to be like Dad. Be like Father. Well, how's Father? He is so merciful. Be like Father. The Father is merciful. Be merciful. Now, let me run these together very quickly. Do you think others will show you mercy if you only show them a judgmental attitude? Do you think God will show you mercy if you constantly spend your whole life judging everyone else? In light of that, you'd be a fool not to treat others with mercy. Why? Because one day you will also stand before the judge. One day you also will have your life examined. And you'd be a fool not to have treated people with mercy. One day when I stand before God, if it doesn't go well, I hope it goes well. But if it doesn't go well, I'm going to make an appeal to mercy and at least claim this. God, you know how many thousands of people and thousands of times I was merciful and not judgmental. And I have intentionally practiced that and I hope to get it back at some point. Do you see what I'm saying? I want God just threw his arms around me and said, son, I saw how you showed mercy. I only have this to say to you. All is forgiven. You have my mercy. Come on. You'd be a fool to live any other way. Jesus said in Luke 6, 37, be forgiving, not judgmental. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Flip the coin over, forgive, don't do this, do this. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Let me just say to everyone this morning, you'd be foolish to live your life in constant judgment of everyone else. That is no way for God's child to live their life. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 14, Paul picked up this conversation. And in Romans 14, 4, here's what he says. Who are you? You know the sentence isn't going to be good when it starts like that. Who do you think you are? Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Now, the context is like this. You're God's servant, you're God's servant, you're God's servant, you're God's servant, and I'm God's servant. Who are we to judge someone else's servant? God will judge his... I mean, the servant's responsible to report to their master. And the Lord will judge them. And then Paul actually says, what's really going to happen, though, is the Lord's not going to knock them down. The Lord's going to make them stand. Let me just see if I can summarize this for time's sake. Since you and I are not the boss of everyone, that's kind of Paul's say. Since you're not the boss of everyone, we need to restrain our comments and our judgments and retrain our minds not to go there automatically. Because that's the real part. Mind goes there and then everything else follows. And rewire ourselves. Let the Holy Spirit rewire us. The master will judge his servants. And anything else is above our pay grade. Just above our pay grade. Sometimes people come to me and say, Pastor, what do you think about this other pastor? Above my pay grade. Above my pay grade. Pastor, what do you think about so-and-so? It's above my pay grade. 
I'm not, I'm not qualified. I am not capable. I can say something may look weird, you know, avoid that. But you know what I'm saying? When it comes to getting to the details of people's lives, most of it's above our pay grade. You'd be foolish to live your whole life judging everyone else. Jesus said this in Luke 6:38, the next verse. Give, and what will be the result, ladies and gentlemen? Now I just want to ask you, uh, do you actually believe the Bible? This is the verse that will test you. We're here because we claim to be followers of Christ and followers of the Word of God. Are you hearing Jesus? Now you want... The way to get is you're going to have to give. Now let me see if I put it just a little bit of context. Jesus said be a giving person. You'd be foolish not to be a giving person. Whoever hears these words and does them, it's going to stand strong like it was founded upon a rock. And people who won't give and try to just take, they're going to find that life comes crashing down. The satisfied life, I just choose my words carefully, is the giving life. It's through giving that we open up our lives for God to pour into us. Be a generous giver to the expansion of God's kingdom. And when we pool our wealth together in our giving, it's more powerful when it's combined with all these other families giving and so much can be accomplished Jesus really makes it sound like in these passages that your blessing is in proportion to your giving. Now, not the dollars, but in proportion to what has been put into your hands as a manager. Because there was a woman who put in like two pennies or whatever you want to call it, you know what I'm saying, put in a few cents, and Jesus said she gave more than everyone because she gave all she had. He's talking about a proportional giving, uh, not a dollar amount giving. The summary of this is basically this. You'd be foolish to live a life of a consumer. Caught up in consumerism. Collecting, collecting, and buying and collecting. Instead of looking at life as an opportunity for God to bless you with wealth. So that you might be a blessing and give. Now, if none of those hit home. Let me get to one very quickly that will hit home with all of us. When Jesus said to them at the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry. Don't worry. You say, Pastor, you've preached 40 minutes now and you haven't hit me yet. I'm about to. Because this is something that's common to all of us. Jesus is now going to say to us, you'd be a fool to live a life filled with worry. Because you can't change much of it. You can only do what you can do. You know, you and I aren't in control of what happens in Ukraine or China or weather balloons or data collection or... Or, we're not in, you see what I'm saying? You can't control that direct, you can't control what the market's going to do in the morning. You can't control so much of life. Don't worry about that which you have no control over. Trust God over that. Now, just to show you how powerful this is, watch these verses. Therefore, I tell you, say these words, do That's pretty weak, so I feel like you're under conviction at this point. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. And just in case you wonder what he's talking about, he clarifies. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, 
I mean, about your body, about what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, in case you don't get it, verse number 31, he repeats it. Watch this. So, so what? All right, now, now, I see, uh, you don't want to feel like you're, yeah, that's it right there. Good. Do not worry. So do not worry. Look at verse 33. Watch this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, in summary, what do you think Jesus is trying to say to us? Yeah, I think he's trying to say, you guys have a default mode here on planet Earth, and it's to worry about everything. Do you have a heavenly father who loves you as children? Erica, your little girls are not worried about anything. Because we haven't programmed them to worry yet. They have a loving mother somewhere, if he hadn't abandoned you. There's a loving father. I think he's still in the picture. I don't know. We'll, we'll find. I'm just kidding. They have a loving mother and a loving father. And therefore, they are surrounded by love. And living in that little slice of heaven, they have no worries. Not a care in the world. You say, why? Mama, Daddy, why would I have a care? They got it all covered. Oh, to be a child again. Oh, to learn and take seriously for once in my life that God really is my Father and that I've been born again from above. And to me, who believed on Jesus, He gave the right to become the children of God. I say it. I preach it. I'm worried that I don't believe it because I still worry. Why, Erica, am I worried? My Father's got it all under control. And he keeps saying to me, you're 5'9", by worrying about it, you'll never be six foot. It's in the Bible, remember that? It's in there. Who can add an inch to his stature by worrying about it? Yeah. He's saying, why do you, why do you worry? The sparrows don't worry. In the ice, a dove landed on our back porch in the ice storm last week and just soaked in the heat coming off the chimney. And just sat back there and I thought, well, gosh, we need to throw some seed out and poor, poor dove can't find anything to eat. The dove was this fat. He was happy as a lot. He just, I was worrying for him. He wasn't worried for himself. Consider the sparrows, God says. Your father feedeth them. Oh, to be that trusting that we really believed tomorrow morning that God was in control of our lives and that he loved us so much not one thing could touch a hair of our head without his permission not one thing could come into our lives that he had not screened and already seen and that nothing <laughs> David said I've not seen the righteous begging bread or going hungry God's taking care of his... You see Jesus' point? You'd be a fool to worry when you have God. You'd be a fool to worry when you got God. Because worry is not going to change anything. 
I think one of the first verses, at least in the old days, we used to teach every disciple here. You guys will remember this. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. And almost everybody in this room has it memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It comes out KJV, sorry. And lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord in all your ways. Lean into him. Lean into the Holy Spirit. If you don't hear anything else I've said this morning and you're troubled, then hear this. God's got you. He's got you. You say, well, I don't know what my career's going to do. I don't know what my career's going to do. I don't. Okay, God's got you. Lean into that. And get on your knees today and say, God, I really believe you do have my career in your hands. I really believe you've got my major and my university choice in your hands. I really do believe you've got my relationships in your hands. And God, I'm going to lean into you this week. And I'm going to just try to do what you told me I should do. I think if we practice that this week, our lives are going to be beautiful. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's, Let's think about what we've heard now and maybe what we need to do. The one thing I am rock solid on this morning is that if we will do what we have heard from Jesus, our lives will please God and our lives will be blessed. If we live the way Jesus said to live, not judging, be merciful, love your neighbor, this sums up the whole law, treat others as the way you want. If we start practicing these things, we will please God. And our lives will be blessed. We'll show the world around us what a kingdom person looks like. We'll show the world what the kingdom of God, what God's rule on earth looks like in a human being's life. And hopefully in your home life. And then hopefully in your neighborhood. And then hopefully it will just spread and spread. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one's looking around, I want to do something I rarely ever do. But I want to ask you a question. I'm going to have you respond to it. By lifting up your hand, who would say this morning, I call Jesus my Lord? If that's you, I want you to lift your hand. Just as a sign to God, God, I lift my hand to you to say this, you are the Lord of my life. God bless you. You can put them down. You've just said to Jesus, Jesus, you are Lord. If you make that declaration, then you are bound by that oath to be what he wants you to be. If you call him Lord, you're going to have to do what he says. Now that shouldn't be a miserable thing. That should be a delight to do what God says, a joy. It's all for our betterment, and it's a way to live the joyous and happy and fulfilled life. My invitation this morning is this. Would Christians find a place of prayer right now and just say, Lord, you've spoken to my heart this morning. If I call you Lord, I'd be foolish not to do what you say. And the commitment I'm making to you on bended knee this morning is this commitment. With the help of your Holy Spirit, I'm going to try to do what you say I should do. 
because I think that is the expression of what it means for you to be the Lord of my life. And I'd like you, if you're comfortable, just slip out of your seat, come kneel at the altar, and just say, Lord, this is my prayer this morning. I call you Lord. Then I also want to say to you, I recognize I must do what you say. And that's not always easy for me. I'm going to need your Holy Spirit. I'm going to have to lean into your help to to accomplish that. I call you Lord. I will do what you say. God, be patient with us. It'll have to be a little bit at a time for sure because little by little, line upon line, we're, we're hearing what you're saying and we're learning how to put it into play. God, I've been saved so long. When I was just a little boy, I received you as my Lord and didn't understand what it looked like, really. I knew I was a sinner and needed a Savior, and I put my faith in you. But God, truly, there's been so many years of my life, so many moments of my life when I just did whatever I wanted to. That's my confession. Forgive me for those moments where I didn't acknowledge you as Lord through my actions, my thoughts, my words. And thank you for being patient and transforming us through your power. If you're here this morning, you've never received Christ as your Savior. There's people who can help you this morning and pray with you and show you how to call him Lord. Anytime between now and when everyone leaves this room, there are people here. You just have to reach out. Some right here on the front row, church leaders, that will just show you how to pray and receive Christ as your Savior today. You take advantage of that opportunity. Let's stand together. Father, I just want to pray over your people this morning. Thank you for the privilege of leading them in this message. Father, it's preached to me and the staff and the elders as well as is to every member a challenge to not live in a foolish way which is to hear and then just go back to default mode but Lord you've challenged us this morning to be wise and to do what you're actually telling us to do God I pray really over this whole year of messages right now Lord that as we come together in this place As disciples are opening the scripture at kitchen tables this week around the community. God, wherever we are engaging with the word of God, Lord, may your word get down deep into our heart and mind and begin the transformation process in our lives. God, I pray that our speech and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes and our emotions would all begin to swing in line. with what you would have lived out if you were here with us right now. When you are, live your life through us. This is what we're praying. Transform us. Spirit of God, be so powerful in our lives that our own will is subdued. That we can yield to you in these moments and be exactly what Christ would be in our community. God, thank you for this wonderful, godly group of people 
who are pursuing you. Lord, before we go, one last bit of prayer. Lord, it seems like the sin we can't get over is worry. It's like the one that everybody in the room are going to stumble over and stumble over and stumble over, including me. God, would you continue to be patient with us and transform us? God, we know you are a loving Father. We know you've got us. We know we should lean into that trust. And yet we worry too much about things we can't change. God, I want to pray a little differently about this over your people this morning. And I want to ask for a favor. God, I feel like you could really help us if you would do something very supernatural in our lives this week. And show us. I don't want to ask for a sign. I know that's childish. But God, just manifest your Father love and provision and protection to us somewhere along this week open our eyes and let us see oh this is God taking care of us this is God opening a way for it. this is God protecting me Lord help our eyes to be open to your fathership in our lives that we would learn not to worry but to trust you guide our steps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.